So what exactly did I contribute to my salvation? I brought my sin. I brought a dead, broken, rebel heart. But see, God rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. As we open up this incredible text this morning, a quote that I found uh, impacting this week uh, is this. Quote, is not one link in the chain of actual redemption is of our forging, or the whole would indeed be fragile. This morning we come to one of those amazing passages where we learn of the glorious, eternal intention of God in the life of each and every believer. And the only right response when struck with such truth is just to pause and to give him all the glory in and for our wondrous salvation. Someone said if your Bibles were to fall open, they should fall open to Romans 8 because of the amount of time you've spent meditating on the impact of these verses, and I like that. But as we look at this text, we come to such a powerfully important text, and as we've sung and as we are now going to dive into this um, time of study, we are, as you can see, looking at a text that speaks of eternal security. And people have asked me, well, wait a minute, you don't really believe in eternal security, do you? You don't really believe that. And I would say, well, I believe God is eternal, don't you? I believe his word is true and unchanging, don't you? I believe that the credit for his work in our salvation belongs to him, not to me, don't you? I believe that nothing can snatch me out of his hand like Jesus assured us in John 10, 28, don't you? And you would say, well, we could jump out of his hand. And I'd say, oh, really? Well, John uh, 6, 38 and 39, Jesus himself said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. That, that is in your Bible as well, is it not? Yes, it is. Okay, good. Just making sure. Now, I believe that I was brought from slave to son, from bondage to adoption. I was brought from foe to friend, from death to life when I was born again by the Spirit of God. And I believe the person who's born a second time, who's born spiritually from above, cannot become unborn. Don't you? So yes, I absolutely believe in eternal security. But my question is, if you're actually reading your Bibles, how do you not also believe in eternal security? J.I. Packer said, we actually all attribute our salvation to all being a work of God because of two things. First, because we pray for people to get saved. We, We pray, God, would you save that person? So in our prayer, in our intercession for people who are unsaved, we say, Lord, I'm praying for them to get saved. Why would we do that if we don't believe God's the one who's doing the work? But secondly... Packer says the second reason that we all attribute our salvation to God is that we thank him. So we say, thank you, Lord, for saving me. We don't put plaques on our wall saying, hey, this is that moment that I received Jesus. 
Uh, it might be a baptism certificate, so to speak, but we don't put ourselves in that place. If salvation weren't all of God, then we wouldn't thank him and we wouldn't ask him to save people. So Packer says this. He says, on our feet, we may have arguments about eternal security uh, or about the work of God in our salvation, but on our knees, we're all agreed. So today in our text, we're going to see the glorious, sovereign work of God in our lives. And there's three important elements, and maybe you missed it when you read this, but we see the Godhead in these verses. We see the person and work of the members of the Trinity in these uh, verses. So you'll notice in verses 26 and 27, what we'll look at in a moment is that we are helped by the Spirit. Then verses 28 and 29, we see how we are joined with the Son. The Father is doing this work, working all things for good, and the greatest good is that we're joined with Jesus. And then we see this glorious verse, verse 30, that we are saved by the Father. So let's begin with that first one and look at how we're helped by the Spirit. Verse 26. Note with me, Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Likewise. Circle that word. Likewise. What does he mean here? Well, in context, we have to look back a little bit at the verses right before this where Paul speaks about the reality of suffering in a broken creation. We talked about that last week, that all creation is groaning. And yet our posture in the midst of groaning is to look ahead with eyes of hope at a future bodily redemption because we've been adopted. And the Spirit of God not only steps in, as we saw the previous week, and testifies to us that, hey, you are a son. Your status is son. But the Spirit also steps in and steps up by coming to our aid. And that's what he says here. The Spirit recognizes our frail condition under the Son and offers a helping hand. Notice that Paul did not say, though, likewise, the Spirit helps you in your weakness. He's not pointing the finger. He's putting himself in that we. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And I, Paul, the great apostle, am not above needing the Spirit's help. Hudson Taylor said it this way, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. So, so none of us are above the help of the Spirit. None of us are like, well, I'm kind of that Christian who doesn't, I don't actually need the Spirit's help. All of us are reliant upon the work of the Spirit because, Paul says, of our weakness. We're all in that same boat. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the disciple of Jesus's advocate. That's you and I. Those who have repented of our sin, trusted Christ, we would say the Spirit is our advocate. In fact, the word for help here, if you want to circle that, the Spirit helps us, that word is only used one other place in our New Testament. It's used when Martha and Mary, remember Jesus was there and Martha was serving and Mary was worshiping. Uh, and so they're both kind of doing their thing. And Martha comes to Jesus. You guys remember that? And Martha gets a bad rap sometimes. But she comes and she comes to Jesus and she says, hey, would you go and tell Mary to help? I want her to help me serve. In other words, to lend a hand, to come alongside me and to assist me. Uh, that's the only other time this word is used. So the idea is that the Spirit recognizes our lack, recognizes our inability. Not only that, but the enormity of the task required of us. And the Spirit comes to lend a hand to assist. And one primary area where this is practical is our prayer life. What else links the suffering in the already, which we looked at last week? 
What else links the suffering and the already to the glory of the not yet, if not prayer? Just think about that. We are persecuted. We are enduring. We're dismayed. We're distraught. And so what do we do? Well, many of us will either turn to binge watching or binge drinking or we'll run into the world. We'll run into sin. But as Christians, where do we turn? We turn to God in prayer. We yield our knees and our hearts as a form of expressing our future hope. We say, I don't understand why this person I love died. And it seems like it's before their time. Lord, I don't understand. I'm dismayed at this. I'm distraught. I'm groaning in this, but I'm bringing this to you. And so Paul says the Spirit is the one who's helping us in our weakness, even in moments when we don't even know what to pray because we're limited in our lack of sovereignty. Doesn't that stink? Don't you hate that, that you're not sovereign? My, maybe I'm the only one. I hate that I am not sovereign. I can't see what's next. But we can rely on the Holy Spirit who does know the mind of God. So note what he says next. He says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. You ever feel that? I don't know what to pray for. I'm in a situation. We'll, we'll talk about this in, when we apply this at the end. But I don't even know what to pray for here. Lord, I need your help. He says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And, verse 27, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but there's actually three groanings that are taking place in chapter 8. Last week, we learned all of creation is groaning. That doesn't mean your pet Fido, when he yelps, is groaning. We learned that last week. All of creation, as kind of a cosmic analogy, personified, creation itself is groaning in pain like a woman in labor. But we learned last week, underneath that, we as Christians are groaning. We're groaning inwardly, even as we're wasting away outwardly. And if you remember last week, our posture is to strain our necks forward as we anticipate future glory, bodily redemption. But underneath Christians, there's another who's groaning. And that is, Paul says, the Holy Spirit of God himself. Now, I, I just want to pause for a minute, take a side trail, and then we'll come back. Just so you know, this is not referring to speaking in tongues. Some people teach that. So the Spirit is groaning which means we're going to speak in tongues that we can't understand. Well, note with me that he doesn't say it's we who are groaning. He says it's the Spirit who's groaning. But not only that, when Paul says here it's too deep for words, he cannot mean speaking a language that's unknown to the speaker. That's what the New Testament gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues is referring to. It's speaking in a language that's unknown to the, to the speaker. Well, instead, he's using the Greek word that means something that's inexpressible, something that doesn't even get to the point of words. So that rules out speaking in tongues because tongues are expressed. He's saying this is something that's inexpressible. It's something that doesn't even make it to the tongue. Literally, the Greek word here means wordless. So Paul is speaking to something deeper. He's speaking to something spiritual that picks up where physical expressed words fail. Have you ever been in that moment where you just don't have the right words to say, the right words to pray? And that's essentially what he's referring to here. We might sigh in our weakness, and we're, we're coming up short. We're unsure what to pray for. But the Spirit will pick up where our weakness limits us and will intercede on our behalf. Think about that. The Spirit of God alongside the Son of God are both known as the intercessors for the church. And so we have the Son of God, the Spirit of God, appealing to God the Father on our behalf. 
interceding for us. Moo says this, Douglas Moo says, Paul is saying that our failure to know God's will and consequent inability to petition God, specifically and assuredly, is met by God's Spirit, who himself expresses to God those intercessory petitions that perfectly match the will of God. When we do not know what to pray for, yes, even when we pray for things that are not best for us, we need not despair, for we can depend on the Spirit's ministry of perfect intercession on our behalf. I mean, what better prayers can be mediated for us than the Spirit who already knows the will of God. You and I don't know the will of God, so when we're in the middle of a moment we don't know what to pray for, the Spirit will intercede for us. So we aren't orphans because the Spirit testifies for us and to us. You are adopted. But we also aren't helpless because the Spirit comes and helps us and intercedes when we can't. God the Spirit praying to God the Father as our helper. It's amazing. Now, that is how the Spirit helps us, and there's much more. But note with me the second section, that we are joined with the Son. Look at verse 28 with me. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This verse, verse 28, such a glorious encouragement for us as Christians. When we look back at the groaning of all creation, we have hope Because within the groaning, there's ultimate good. Amen? See, verse 28 is one of the first verses that we taught our children. I want to say Aiden, London, they were about three or four years old. Two or three, I don't know. They could barely talk. And we taught them the hand motions and everything. And if you, if you want to know, parents, what those are, I'm not going to do them in the sermon right now. Um, but I'll show you afterwards. But we, we taught our kids. Uh, sometimes at our house, when the clock strikes 828, we'll look around and I'll say, Hey, guys, just a reminder from the clock, that God works all things for the good of those who love him. So all things work together for good. All things, yes, but not for all people. Note with me that he says those who love God. So for those who don't love God, who aren't called according to his purpose, we cannot say with any false assurance that, hey, all things are going to work out for good. Romans 8.28 is not a blanket verse for all people. We can't say to the unbeliever some sort of false hope that, hey, you're going to die and be in a better place. And you know what? It's all good. You'll be reunited with your grandpa who didn't know Jesus. You'll be reunited one day in a better place. There is no future redemption, whether eternally or bodily, only the fearful expectation of wrath and judgment. That itself is ultimately good, but not for the unrepentant. So God works all things in cosmic creation specifically for those who are loved by God, who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now, notice that Paul uses two ways to describe us in this verse. Did you catch it? There's one kind of from our perspective and then from his perspective. So he says, first, to describe us, first, we are those who love God, and we don't see this a lot from Paul. Usually it's we're loved by God. We're the ones who uh, are recipients of his love. But here he, he switches that. He says, no, the ones who love God. And then secondly, notice, we're also described as those who are called according to his purpose. We could look at one from our perspective. My responsibility is to love God. But then we also have to, above that, not parallel to that, above that, say, but God is sovereign. So yes, there's a responsibility I have, but 
in the mystery of God, he's sovereign over that. So when it says those who are called according to his purpose, this calling is not a general call. Like I'm calling everyone to come to faith. Just, I'm just calling, I'm putting a call out there. This is an effectual call. So this doesn't mean that, hey, you were invited to respond to Jesus when the gospel's proclaimed. This is God's effectual summoning of a person from death to life, resurrected to a relationship. Okay, when you hear calling here, I want you to think, I've been called, resurrected to relationship. And this is according to God's purpose. And the ultimate purpose in the next verse is to conform us to the image of his son. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But just real quick, we, we know God works all things together for greater good. I, I just want to make sure we don't overly personalize Romans 8.28. Do you know what I mean? Like, we, we go to Dunkin' Donuts at 3 p.m. and they still have blueberry donuts for sale. God works all things together for good. Uh, that's not the idea here, as great and as God-honoring as the blueberry donut truly is. If you want to express your love language to me, one of my love languages is donuts, as many of you know. That's not what he's referring to here. Like, well, I just, all things, Lord, thank you. No, no, the all things includes the suffering and the groaning that we saw a few verses earlier, but the good he's working for is in the next two verses. It's all, it's all a part of his plan of redemption. And that is, according to Ephesians 1, constantly, it's to the praise of his glorious grace, not to the praise of how awesome you were in coming to Christ. So notice verse 29 with me. Again, this is all and this idea of being joined with the Son. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. All right. So apparently, who knew? Apparently, there's some controversy about the word predestined. Who knew? I mean, apparently, forno and predestination have some sort of a debate. So uh, I didn't know that. But uh, we are going to look at these two words for a minute. Circle the word foreknew. Foreknew. Listen, these are biblical terms. Let's not be afraid. Let's not shrink back. Let's not caricature. Let's, let's let the scripture speak for itself. Amen. So those whom he foreknew, the word foreknew means to know in advance. We get the word prognosis from it. You walk into a doctor's office. The doctor knows in advance as you begin to describe the symptoms. But better than that, this is not primarily referring to the intellect of God, but to his kind will by which he sets people apart for himself. So to know here, foreknew, actually a better word could even be foreloved. It's to love. In the Old Testament, we hear that uh, one Old Testament saint went and knew his wife. What does that mean? It means that they went into the tent and they consummated their marriage. They knew one another in a very intimate way. It wasn't just that, yeah, I knew her. I knew her. What is her name again? I, I knew her. I know her. No, the idea is like we came together in love. It's an intimate knowledge, uh, and it's a personal knowledge. Fornu is only described of God. Only God has that sort of intimate, loving knowledge. Now, listen, this is not, and some people teach this, this is not that God met up with Doc Brown, and they opened the door of the DeLorean. If you don't know that reference, we need to really talk, okay? <laughs> he gets the flux capacitor set, and he goes into the future, and he's able to see who's going to pick me. Who's going to say yes to the gospel? Okay, now, okay, did you write that down, Doc? Good, where's Marty? Okay, great. And then he takes the time machine back and then begins, okay, now they're the ones who have been chosen from the foundation of the world. That would mean that the ground of our salvation was in us. 
Well, see, God saw something in me, so that means pat on the back, good job, pilgrim. You're the man. See, foreknew doesn't just mean God knew about you. It means he knew you. It means you've been known and loved by the Father even before you were conceived. Isn't that wonderful? Now, the word predestined. Predestined means to, in the Greek, to determine beforehand, and we get our word horizon from this Greek word. What is a horizon? Well, a horizon is the boundary or the limit of the sky where the sky meets the sea, and it's clearly marked, unless it's cloudy on some of our Sarasota sunsets. So this, again, means, this is a word, again, that is only used of God toward his people. Nowhere do we see people predestined other people. This is only a work of God. But also, we don't read this word in reference to people going to hell. We only read about this in reference to uh, God's people. So I would say people go to hell because they are condemned already and because of their obstinate unbelief and their lawless rebellion. So God's sovereignty doesn't erase man's responsibility. And we see this word in a few other places in Scripture. I want you to jot this one down for sure. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. Uh, this is what Peter says. He says, For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, notice here, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So please hear me. This does not mean that God forced the adversaries of Jesus, Herod and Pilate and the Jews and the Romans, that he put them on the chessboard as pawns and they were working against their will. They're like, I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't, I don't mean to be crucifying this guy, but I don't know what's happening. No, they bear full responsibility in their blood guilt. But see, God was sovereign to allow them to conspire against Jesus so that he could bring the greatest good of all, uh, which was salvation for his people. They did their worst, and in their worst, God was working his plan from eternity past. Another great passage is Acts chapter 2 that says that this happened. We're not going to put it on the screen, uh, but Acts chapter 2 reminds us as Peter is, is preaching uh, in Jerusalem, he, he's, he's kind of reminding the people that, hey, at the end of the day, this was all a part of God's sovereign plan, even the cross. God was accomplishing his sovereign will. Watson says this, this word predestined, which definitely gets a bad rap, but, he's, but it's in our Bibles. He says, this word graphically demonstrates that God has marked out something for each of his elect. He's marked out a destiny. Much of that destiny is hidden from us. It's beyond the horizon. The primary purpose in God's predestination is that Christ might be made preeminent. What were we predestined to? Paul says, according to verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, okay, now we have another word that can be somewhat misunderstood. The word firstborn here. This does not mean Jesus was the first created. So Jesus was the firstborn. He's the first created. No, Jehovah's Witnesses, the false cult group, they believe and teach that. That's not what he means here. What he means, the firstborn means the one of priority, the one of supremacy. In the Old Testament, the firstborn was the one who kind of received the priority. They were the first uh, who had most of the uh, leadership. And so Colossians 1 describes Jesus as both, both the firstborn over creation as well as the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? It doesn't mean he's the first created, 
and he's the first one who's resurrected, it means he's the one preeminent. He's supreme over creation, and he is preeminent over all who will be resurrected. So to be conformed to his image, that's what you and I have been predestined for. This does not mean one day, oh, I'm going to be deity. Okay, again, that's what the Mormons falsely teach. It's not that we will become Christ, as the New Agers teach, but no, it means that we'll one day be united to, not just with, but to our elder brother, and we'll become like Jesus in his sinlessness and in uh, having a resurrected body. And so we are today in our sanctification being conformed, and one day the ultimate goal is that we'll fully, finally be conformed to his image. And so what a glorious truth that God foreknew us. He predestined us to be joined with Jesus. It's just such a wonderful truth. Now, look at this last verse, and we really could have spent like a few sermons on verse 30, and maybe we will. Uh, But verse 30 says this, Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what it means to be saved by the Father. So look at these words on the screen for a minute. Uh, These are what is known as the golden chain of redemption. We see in verse 28, 29 that we've been foreknown, that we've been predestined, and here he adds to that we've been called, justified, and glorified. Now, we we mentioned called a little while ago. This does not mean a general call, like someone called out to a crowd, uh, but this is a specific effectual call. Spurgeon called this general call, uh, he described it as sheet lightning, which would kind of like be heat, we call it heat lightning in Florida. You see the lightning out there, but it never actually strikes the ground. It lights up the night sky. That's kind of a general call, but the effectual call is when that lightning strikes the target. Uh, those who were effectually summoned by the Father from death to life and into a relationship with himself were not only called, but he says they were justified. Justified. We've learned a lot about that word in Romans and in Galatians, but just a refresher, John Stott says when God justifies sinners, he's not declaring bad people to be good. He is pronouncing them legally righteous, free from any liability to the broken law because he himself and his son has borne the penalty of their lawbreaking. Does that make sense? So to be justified is to be declared righteous, spoken, not just forensically and legally not guilty, where we'd say just as if I'd never sinned, But it's also more than that. It's just as if I lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. So it's not just I didn't sin. I'm I'm just kind of brought back to zero. But it's also that it's just as if I lived a perfectly righteous life. So there's a positive. And we learn all throughout Scripture that we're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So we are not only foreknown, predestined, called, justified, but note with me, He says, glorified. And this is the end state when our sinful bodies are laid to rest and we're clothed with immortality and glory. And we reflect, like 1 John tells us, we are like him. We see him, we are like him in our resurrected and glorified state. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but Romans 8.30, and we will do another sermon on just that verse. He's writing it as though it's seemingly past tense. Did you catch that? It's like it already happened. That's not an accident. When God sees us, he sees his salvific work as already completed. You and I see ourselves in real time, and we get incredibly discouraged. Maybe I'm the only one. I look at my own sanctification or lack thereof, 
And I go, what is up? Holy Spirit, do a double work here. I need your help. I sing that song, my favorite hymn, Come Thou Fount. We get to that line where, hey, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I'm like, Lord, I own it. This is me. I'm constantly prone to wander. And I get flustered with my own lack of sanctification. But according to God's perspective, he looks at my salvation as already completed. Like he looks at me, Ephesians 1.4, as chosen before the world was founded. I can't figure that one out. And I'm already raised and I'm already seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 2.6. That one's tough for me to figure out. Before the ages began, I was saved. I was called, not because of my works, but because of his purpose and grace, which he gave me in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 1.9. And so uh, it's certain, and it's certainly of God, and it's so certain that it appears on the pages of our Bibles as if it's past tense. This is incredible. This is the work of God. I want us to understand two theological terms this morning. We don't talk about these a lot, but the idea is monergism or synergism. Um, so monergism, I'm trying to, you know, I mean, we got to get our money's worth this morning, throw some theology in. So monergism is this idea of one is at work, one is at work, and synergism is where we get, you know, synergy, this idea of both being at work, okay? So you guys remember when you were put into a group, a group project in school? You guys remember that? So you had your own like work that you would do for projects, but then on occasion the teacher would say, it's time for group project time. And you either responded really excitedly or really frustrated because you would get teamed up with another student and one of two things happened to you depending on the type of student you were. A, you were discouraged because you were a good student and the person you had been teamed up with was a slacker and you would be doing most, okay, be honest, you'd be doing all of the work, you'd get the hundred, and so would they. So you're either greatly discouraged or you were pumped because you were the slacker and you didn't have to do anything, and lift a finger, and the other guy did everything and you got the A. So the question is, is our salvation monergistic or synergistic? In other words, do we say, my salvation is a team project, where I work alongside God. God does, yeah, he does most of the work, but I, I do, I, I've done something. I deserve to be on the, my name should be on the paper. Well, we look back at Romans 8.30 and, and before, we're foreknown, well, that's not mine. We're predestined, yep, still not me. Called, uh, justified, definitely not me. Glorified, okay. So what exactly did I contribute to my salvation? I brought my sin. I brought a dead, broken, rebel heart. But see, God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. He makes us alive. We repent of our sin. We trust Christ. So there is a responsibility for us to, to yield our lives to Jesus. And yet above that, over that, again, not parallel to that, in the mystery of God, he has been the one who sovereignly drew us. C.J. Vaughn says, everyone who's eventually saved can only ascribe his salvation from the first step to the last to God's favor and act. Human merit must be excluded, and this can only be by tracing back the work far beyond the obedience which evidences or even the faith which appropriates salvation, even to an act of spontaneous favor on the part of that God who foresees and foreordains from eternity all his works. 
So in light of this, in light of these truths, in light of uh, what we have in our salvation, I really see three responses that we can have this morning. So if you're taking note, I want you to jot these down. Three responses to our salvation uh, and to what we just read in verses 26 and 27. And that is, number one, that we need to rely on the Holy Spirit in our prayer life. Is anybody like me? Don't show your hands, but is anybody here like not an expert in prayer? Like if they had the prayer Olympics, you would not be selected for that particular uh, event. Uh, so uh, to be honest, there, there are times I find myself in situations where I don't even know, I don't even know how to pray. When we were in Tampa, we had a, a member of our church call me and said, hey, my wife just um, miscarried. We have the fetus. We're not sure what to do. Can, can you help me out here? Can you, pr- can you come and pray with me? And, and so what do you do in that moment as a pastor? How do, how do you counsel someone? How do you bring someone, a family, who's dealing with that sort of trauma to the throne of God, to the throne of grace? What do you do? So how, how do you even pray? Like, has this happened to you? You find yourself with a friend and you go, Lord, I don't even know what to pray. Like, do I pray that my friend recovers from this illness? Or do I pray God is glorified in her suffering and death? Like, what do I do? What's your will, Lord? I don't know what to pray. Well, I don't even know what your will is. Well, the, the word says here that he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for our, uh, on our behalf, for the saints, according to the will of God. So we have an advocate who's praying the things we don't know what to pray. Remember in Luke chapter 11, Jesus' disciples came and it says Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. In other words, the disciples observed, if anyone could win the prayer Olympics, of course it was Jesus. And so they observed his prayer life and their response to him was, we need some of that. We need to learn how to do that. Jesus, teach us how to pray like that. But you and I have the Holy Spirit of God giving the assist in our prayer life. But my question is, in your weakness, have you relied on him? Have you relied on the Spirit? Spirit, I don't know what to pray for in this moment. Please intercede on my behalf. See, our response should mimic David's in Psalm 62 where he, he says, trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. Does that look like your prayer life? To just pour out your heart before him. You see, the Holy Spirit takes up our needs at the deepest level and conveys both our cares and our concerns to the Father. And every prayer the Spirit prays is in accordance with the will of God. We may not know what God's will is, but the Spirit does. Stephen Cole says it this way, the Spirit takes up our deepest feelings and our unexpressed needs to the Father who understands everything perfectly. Nothing leaves God scratching his head, wondering what our real needs are. Since God searches and knows every heart, our prayers should come from the heart. You can impress others with spiritual-sounding prayers, but those prayers don't impress God. Pour out your heart honestly to him. So my, my exhortation to us as a church is that we would rely on the Spirit's help as we pray, that we just pour out our hearts to him. Secondly, this is for us to apply, rest. Rest in the good plan of God to conform you to the image of his Son. You see, this is the ultimate good that he's working all things together for. The culmination of the cosmos is to put all things under Christ's feet, that he would have the preeminence. So that means rest today. I've said it before, like coming to the altar to receive Christ, like my 25th time, raising my hand. I just got to make sure I pray the sinner's prayer. One of these has to stick. 
I've got to do my part. Well, today we can rest in the good plan of God, conforming us to his image. I would challenge you with this. What has been happening in your life, whether good or bad, is ultimately to see you formed or to see Christ formed in you. You have a great job? Hey, that's awesome. A lot of people are struggling with finding work today. That's great. You have a great job, great life. Is Christ being formed in you? Oh, okay, no, you're enduring hardship right now. Life isn't good. Life is tough. Okay, I'm sorry that's happening, but is Christ being formed in you? Are you being conformed to the image of Christ? You see, Spurgeon tells the story of uh, one Mr. Gilpin in Romans 8.28, and it's gold. I had to share it with you guys. Um, He says, with that eminent servant of God, Mr. Gilpin, when he was arrested to be brought up to London to be tried for preaching the gospel, his unbelieving captors began to make fun of his frequent remark that God works all things for good. When he fell off his horse and broke his leg, his captors were especially merry about it. But the good man quietly remarked, I have no doubt even this painful accident will prove to be a blessing. And Spurgeon says, and so it was, for as he could not travel quickly, the journey to London was prolonged, and he arrived some days later than expected. When they reached Highgate, they heard the bells ringing merrily in the city down below. They asked, what is the meaning of the bells? And they were told, Queen Mary is dead. There will be no more burning of Protestants. (laughs) Ah, said Mr. Gilpin, you see, it is all for the best. And Spurgeon says, it is a blessing to break a leg if thereby a life is saved. How often our calamities are our preservatives. See, for the believer, God works all things together for good. And the good, the ultimate good is to be conformed into the image of his son. So rest, rest in that, that God is doing a work through the difficulty, through the good times, through the, the difficult times. He's drawing you to be conformed to his son. Well, finally, what should our response be as we look at the work of God in our salvation? It shouldn't be anger, complaint, disagreement, division. It should be reverence. We should just sit back and go, wow, I can't figure all this out. I can't explain specifically how scientifically the rays of the sun reach my face, but I can enjoy the fact that the sun is shining today. And so I revere God for his sovereign redemptive action on my behalf. When we learn of these amazing truths that aren't just limited to this verse or throughout the scripture, we read about the tender mercies of God on our behalf, on sinners' behalf. The only right response is reverent awe and worship. John Stott answers a lot of the criticisms that people have about predestination, specifically what our responses are. And he says that um, some people will argue that if you believe God is sovereign in your salvation, then that, that makes you boastful or that makes you not sure if you're predestined or not. So you lose sleep over that or you're apathetic and you just don't, you don't care. You just not even live for the Lord. You just kind of sit back and coast because you're the frozen chosen. Uh, or or you're just, you become narrow-minded and you're self-absorbed and you don't evangelize because, well, they're going to be elect anyway, so I don't even need to evangelize. And it doesn't even matter. But in the end, John Stott answers those criticisms brilliantly. I'll probably post it this week on uh, my blog or on the, the Facebook page with the church. But he argues that, no, understanding this truth should actually produce the opposite reaction. So here's what he says. He says, the doctrine of divine predestination promotes humility, not arrogance. We realize I can't believe that, that God has chosen me from the foundation of the world. It promotes assurance, 
not apprehension. We go, oh, this isn't dependent on me. Because if I could lose my salvation, believe me, I would. Uh, it produces responsibility, not apathy. Hey, I've been called and tasked to go to all the nations and to preach the good news. So, wow, that means I need to be doing this. I have responsibility. He says that we have holiness, not complacency, because we realize, well, I've been born again to be set apart for the purposes of God. So I'm not going to lay back. I'm actually going to lean ahead. And he says it produces mission, not privilege. He says God didn't make his own people uh, to be his favorites, but to be his witnesses. So that leans us forward. That means when we are commissioned out from every Sunday gathering, we're commissioned out to take this glorious good news, these doctrines of grace, if you would, in a grace-filled way. And so... This morning, we testify of a God of infinite grace who sent his son to die in our place, chosen from the foundation of the world, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And as we continue our study of Romans chapter 8, we begin to see this love that God has for his people can never be jeopardized. It can never be thwarted. We're going to sing in just a moment the words of the hymn, Complete in Thee. And here's what they say, Complete in Thee, no work of mine could take, dear Lord, the, the place of thine. Thy blood hath pardon bought for me, and I shall stand complete in thee. Yea, justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified, salvation wrought. Thy blood hath pardon bought for me, and glorified I too shall be. This is the work of God in our life. We should glory in it, and we should give God all the praise and the thanks. Amen? Let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us. We address the Trinity in this text, we're going to address the Trinity as we pray. So bow your heads with me together. Merciful Savior, in your infinite love, you condescended from the Father's right hand to put on our flesh, to tabernacle among us. Jesus, you were born of a virgin, born under the law. You were sent to redeem Adam's race. And you suffered and you died in our place. And you absorbed the wrath that we deserve. So we thank you, Jesus. We stand in awe this morning for your perfect sacrificial love for us. Gracious Father, we glory in the eternal plan that you founded before creation even commenced. And we stand this morning in awe before you that you would be the one that knit us together in our mother's wombs. And even before that, you foreknew us. You predestined us to one day be conformed to the image of your son. You called us from death to life and justified us. Though we deserve your wrath because of our sin, Lord, we thank you, Father, that you placed us in right standing before you. And even though you see us as already glorified, we thank you for sustaining us by your Spirit as we're daily sanctified in and by your grace. And so, Holy Spirit, we lean on you for help when our prayers are few. And we lean on you when our prayers are lean. And we lean on you when our prayers are empty, that as Christ is our intercessor in heaven. You are the intercessor in our hearts. So thank you for strengthening us in our weakness. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would empower us, embolden us, equip us to be effective witnesses of this gospel of glorious grace for your renown, for your glory. May we be commissioned out today to be your effective witnesses. Lord, that people would hear the good news, would respond in faith. And then as they enter the glorious access to heaven, as they walk through, they see that kind of sign, if you would, that gate that says, 
come to me. And yet as they walk in, they see the other side. It says, chosen before the foundation of the world. These things in the mind of God are somewhat of a mystery to us, but we glory in your glorious grace. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you'd be glorified now as we close in song. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.